You're listening to a Rua podcast created by St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm your host, Chantal Moyer. For this year's Lenten season, we decided to go back to a book we published in 2009 and offer it as an eight-episode podcast series to be released over the course of the season. The 2009 book, titled A Book for Lent, Toward What We Can Scarcely Imagine and Scarcely Refuse, was written by James Snyder, an American Lutheran pastor and a friend to St. Benedict's Table, with illustrations by Helen Lyons. The first version of these eight meditations was written in 2000 for use at St. George's Anglican Church in Halifax, Nova Scotia. With the exception of the first meditation, which was a sermon for Ash Wednesday entitled Atla, the reflections were all delivered on Good Friday 2000, based on the seven words, or the seven sayings from the cross. Jim provides material of substantial depth, delivered with a bit of grit and with a storyteller's eye to detail, all offered up in the service of the proclamation of grace. In spite of the fact that these addresses were originally delivered on the two most solemn days of the Christian year, they are not without their touches of humor. As you listen, it will become more than a little clear that Jim Snyder is rather thoroughly committed to a perspective that says that in Christ, the grace of God has overcome all else. For this series... Jamie Howison will be reading the text of these meditations. The first word, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. A man dies, executed by the authorities, in a manner customary for those times, and we find it significant. According to the bulk of recent scholarship, he was just a Galilean peasant, Some see him as a kind of philosopher like Diogenes, a rural cynic, who undermined people's normal way of thinking, an iconoclast who had a strong following among the lost, the least, and the dispossessed. But he made the tactical mistake of taking his cause from the backwaters of Israel into the metropolis of Jerusalem, the center of power, at the wrong time, during Passover, a time when the civil and religious authorities were acutely sensitive to any potential disturbance. For there were thousands of extra people in town during that festivity, and crowd control would have been a high priority. Anyone being disruptive and making threatening remarks about the temple, as this man apparently did, would have been taken as seriously as someone making bomb threats in an airport. It didn't matter that the temple was virtually impregnable. It was made of stone and measured 300 meters long by 100 meters wide. That's three football fields long and one football field wide. And it had the solidity of a bank vault, which it in fact was. Verbal offenses were taken with utmost seriousness. One blasphemous or seditious word, one insult, one innuendo, was all it might take for the authorities to respond with extreme prejudice, to summarily round you up and hang you from a tree as a deterrent, a most effective deterrent, I might add. 
Such state-sponsored terrorism was fairly common, routine. It happened all the time. And there might have been nothing distinctive about this one except that his friends went to great lengths to secure permission to bury him properly. You know why? Because otherwise he would have been left there. Envision, if you will, a canvas painted by some Flemish master. You are looking out upon a dark plain that recedes toward an ever darker horizon. A few bare trees frame the border. From the foreground as far as the eye can see are crosses, a hundred crosses, two hundred, maybe more. And hanging upon some of these crosses in various states of decomposition are human carcasses. Crows and ravens pick away at some of them. Dogs and wild beasts leap up to grab what they can reach. There is a thick concentration of flies in some places. Vultures sit in the trees, patiently waiting for things to ripen to their tastes. Bones and bone fragments litter the ground of this place, this God-forsaken place, appropriately named the Skull. This is the epiphany inverted into nightmare. Its absolute antithesis, its utter negation. You want light? You will not find it here. All light is extinguished in this place, sucked into the bottomless hole of oblivion. Do you know that all the archaeological research done up to this day has yielded the remains of only one person who was crucified? Thousands upon thousands of graves have been excavated, and thousands upon thousands of people were crucified in that era, but only one of them has been found. Ponder that for a moment. People who were crucified had no name, they had no friends, they had no influence, they had no means. Therefore, they had no grave. They were simply left there, or they were tossed into a shallow grave that would have been quickly scavenged. And that was more ignominious, more horrifying, more humiliating than death itself. To hang upon a cross meant only one thing, that you were accursed by God. To hang upon a tree meant that God had abandoned you forever. What could it mean for God to hang upon a tree? For God to let himself be pushed out of the world on a cross, naked, debased, defiled, offered as food for wild dogs to devour. The author of all life and love, the creative force of the entire universe sucked into the black hole nothingness. The one who created us pushed out by us, rolled up and dropped into a dumpster. God abandoned by God. Does this induce ontological shock, spiritual incapacitation, or cognitive meltdown in you? Or is it just me? It's not conceivable, is it? No, it's not. And yet, for the people marked in the name of that Galilean peasant, this is where we meet our God. There, at this garbage dump, and nowhere else but there. I know we wish there could be a better place. We know better places. 
and it may extend out from here into untold worlds and marvelous wonders and dimensions, but I know almost nothing about that. All I know is it always starts there, and it always returns to there, to the place of the skull. Because there, in this event, is where that word was first spoken, that decisive and irrevocable word, you are forgiven. For everything you do and everything you fail to do, you are forgiven. For every infidelity and every transgression, you are forgiven. For everything you fail to become in life, you are forgiven. And for every denial and for every nail you drive into his hands, you are forgiven. You are forgiven before you are even born. You were forgiven when you were just an idea in God's mind. And if you want to discuss theological subtleties here, if you want to quibble over the mechanics of forgiveness, the conditions to be met, our desire for it, and so forth, I cannot help you. You'll have to take it somewhere else. There, in these words of our Lord, forgiveness is just given. Period. End of discussion. And what are you going to do with that? In baptism, your forehead was marked by that cross, and you were named with his name, and you were told once and for all who you are, and that happened there, right there, at the very spot and the very moment our God was expelled from the world. That was Jamie Howison reading a Lenten reflection written by Jim Snyder. Please consult the show notes for a link to a web post on which each episode in this series will be posted as it becomes available. On that post, you will also be able to view some of Helen Lyon's artwork from the print edition of the book. The music for this series is by Steve Bell and is used with Steve's blessing and by the good graces of Signpost Music. If you would like to know more about our work or provide some support for our online ministry, please visit us at stbenedictstable.ca. I'm your host, Chantal Moyer. Thanks for listening. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, sometimes it causes me to Were you there when they crucified my